Okay, we're going to release the children. So um, unleash them, have them go to their classes. I think the um, uh, teachers and stuff are there at the back ready to do the, the necessary collecting. And for those of us who are left here, um, let's get our Bibles in our hands. If you don't have one, uh, this fine gentleman here has a stack. Um, put up a mitt and see if one doesn't come to you. All right. And uh, make your way to the Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm 73 here this morning. Um, you probably know we're doing a little kind of mini-series here on the Psalms after we wrapped up with Ephesians. We're um, really excited to do that. Rod and I get the chance to share, I guess, really some favorite Psalms with you. Um, there isn't any particular rhyme or reason to the ones that we're choosing other than the fact that they've really spoken to us. Um, so I have Psalm 73 here this morning, and this is one of my uh, kind of all-time most meaningful Psalms for me, um, but it's really jumped right out of the Bible at me over the last week. I've got to tell you, I've seen some stuff that I've not seen before, so I'm excited to share it with you here. All right, so um, I wonder how many of you have ever sat in church wondering whether God really exists? To some of us, that might seem like a crazy question, because we're in church, because we're all sure that God exists, right? Right? And for some of us, that's good enough. Maybe we've always believed and we've never had a reason to doubt. Maybe uh, most of the people that we know are Christians, and so we never rub up against any of the alternatives that are out there. Uh, Maybe we've had such a powerful experience of God in our lives that all our questions have now been answered. That kind of experience of complete confidence in God is a wonderful thing. It's a desirable thing, and the Bible encourages us to desire it. So if you go to Colossians 4, sometimes later, sometimes later you'll find uh, Paul talking about his friend Epaphras, um, who was praying for the believers in this place, Colossae, that they might be fully assured of what they believe. What a great thing to pray for, and what a great thing to aim for. In 1 John chapter 5, Uh, We find John telling his readers he wants them to know that they have eternal life. That's something definitely to pray for, isn't it? That confidence, something to really long for uh, in our walk with God and something to really thank God for uh, if we have it. But is it true to say that every believer has it? Is it true to say that every believer always has this comforting sense of certainty that what they've believed is real and that they never experience that awful fear that it might actually be an illusion. Certainly there are some passages in the Bible that seem to say that. Uh, You might be familiar with Hebrews 11 verse 1 where we read that uh, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So if faith is a matter of confidence and assurance, there doesn't seem to be much room for doubt, does there? But as you read on through Hebrews 11, uh, reading the stories of the heroes of the Old Testament, we find that the writer isn't thinking so much about a feeling of certainty or assurance, as he is about a willingness to act on the basis that the things we believe are certain and sure, irrespective of how we feel. Did Abraham always feel confident about what God was asking him to do? Did he sense that great feeling of uh, warmth and inner peace about leaving his family or sacrificing his son? I don't think so. 
Did Moses always feel confident about what God was asking him to do? Absolutely not. When God called him, Moses asked God to send somebody else. No, the thing that marked Abraham and Moses as men of faith was not their feelings, but their actions. Despite gut-churning uncertainties about what uh, God was asking them to do, they went ahead and did it. They acted on the basis that God would keep his promises. And that's what the writer to the Hebrews means by faith. It's not feeling certain. It's acting certain. Faith is an inner determination to rely on the thing in which our faith is placed in practice, whether we feel good about it or not. James chapter 1 is another one of those passages which might uh, cause us to kind of wonder what's going on with all this stuff, uh, where we read that uh, we must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That seems pretty negative about doubt too, doesn't it? But James is really making the same point that the writer to the Hebrews makes. Again, if you read the verse in its context, the kind of doubt that James condemns here is doubt that doesn't just affect the feelings of a person, but their actions. And so James continues uh, that this individual uh, who's doubting, who he uh, urges us not to emulate, is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. They act like a Christian one minute, And then like a non-Christian, the next minute. And that isn't faith. Real faith is acting like you're a Christian all the time. Even when you're questioning it inside. That explains then, I think, the tenderness with which God approaches this whole question of doubt in the rest of the Bible. So when you read in Jude uh, that uh, we're uh, encouraged to be merciful to those who doubt. That's a really interesting kind of reference point, isn't it? And I think Jesus shows us the same attitude many times, but particularly in the incredible kindness that he shows when John the Baptist experiences doubts. I don't know whether you're familiar with that passage, but it's really striking. In Matthew chapter 11, don't turn to it now, after John the Baptist had been imprisoned by Herod, he sent some of his followers to Jesus with an extraordinary question. Bear in mind here, this is the guy who prepared the way for Jesus. This is the guy who baptized Jesus, who uh, heard the voice from heaven and who saw the Holy Spirit descend on him in the form of a dove. This is the guy who gave his whole ministry away to Jesus and encouraged his followers to follow him, saying he must become greater and I must become less. This is the guy who went to prison for calling out the godlessness and immorality of Israel's leaders. There's no shortage of faith in John the Baptist. No shortage of acting on the basis that God would keep his promises. But in prison, John started wrestling with a terrible doubt. He sent his followers to Jesus to ask, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? That's amazing and heartbreaking, isn't it? John was wondering now whether Jesus was really the Christ at all. But Jesus' response to him is all compassion. He sent John's followers back to him with this message. The blind see, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. The key to understanding Jesus' answer there is in that final sentence. 
It's as if he says something like this. Yes, it's true that I'm not quite what you were expecting. But blessed is the man, happy, spiritually secure is the man who doesn't fall away on account of what I am like. Jesus urged John to keep trusting that he truly was the Messiah, even if for the present he couldn't quite understand it or feel comfortable about it. Jesus doesn't berate him for his struggles, because struggles like that are part of normal Christian experience. Instead, he urged him to keep going. And we're going to find something similar today in our psalm. So stand with me and open up Psalm 73. And I'm going to read the whole thing. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles, their bodies healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up their waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God and then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me. By my right hand, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it's good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Okay, take a seat and let's pray together. God in heaven, as we approach this psalm, we just ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts. Lord, enable us to drink in your words. God, would you comfort those of us who are afflicted. God, would you comfort uh, those of us who are struggling. Lord, would you prepare those of us who will struggle in future. Lord God, would you work among us and give us as a church a heart of compassion and confidence in God that we might serve you more effectively and follow you and uh, use our gifts more to your glory. In Jesus' name.
Amen. All right, so Psalm 73. Welcome to the world of a believer experiencing doubt. There are actually lots of examples like this in the Bible, but this is one of the most detailed ones. Who is he? Well, uh, the psalm, uh, the beginning there, that text tells us that the psalm was written by a man called Asaph. And um, turns out we know quite a lot about him from the rest of the Bible text. Um, when David brought the ark up to Jerusalem in 1 Chronicles chapter 15, he appointed Levites and musicians to make a joyful sound with musical instruments, lyres, harps, and cymbals. And Asaph is mentioned as one of the cymbal players. Great. And uh, Asaph clearly did a pretty good job because in the next chapter, we read that once they got the ark up to the tabernacle, David established a team of musicians to lead worship before the ark, Sabbath after Sabbath. And Asaph was asked to be the leader. So uh, to put this in modern terms, think of Asaph as a kind of percussionist turned worship pastor, kind of a Tyler Howe turned Greg Dempster um, (laughs) with the responsibility for leading. I can see that, Um, you know, with the... uh, with the responsibility for leading worship at First Bible Church in Jerusalem. As we read on through 1 Chronicles, we learn that Asaph ultimately developed a reputation as a man of great spiritual insight. He wrote more psalms than anyone else except David. He actually contributed more words to the book, the Bible that you have in your hands, than the Apostle Peter did in the end. So this guy is a man of God, used amazingly by God, at a crucial moment in the unfolding story of God's kingdom. And yet, here we find him wrestling with a terrible doubt. He starts the psalm on a point of conviction, doesn't he? Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But that point of conviction is also the root of his problem. Because when Asaph looked around him, he couldn't maintain that that conviction was true. He tells us that his feet almost slipped and he nearly lost his foothold because he envied the arrogant when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. When Asaph looked out at the world around him, he didn't see God being good to Israel at all. He saw God being good to the wicked, allowing them to prosper while his own people suffered affliction and new punishments every morning, as Asaph describes it in verse 14. And that whole observation led him to a dreadful conclusion. In verse 13, he writes, Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. Now that's an appalling thought, isn't it? That this man who had been so central to everything that God was doing in his day and who had served others and led others in worship might now be reduced to thinking that his whole walk with God was completely worthless. Because what does it mean to say uh, that all his service was in vain? It means that in Asaph's mind, he was starting to suspect that God didn't keep his promises. That he wasn't good to Israel, even though he promised that he would be. Or maybe that he wasn't even there at all. Asaph was questioning the whole basis of his faith. I wonder how did Asaph get to that point? Uh, The text hints for us that there were multiple reasons for it. And I think it's important that we see that. You see, as Christians, I think we find it easy to write this kind of thing off as sin and to make repentance the one-size-fits-all solution. You have questions about God's existence, repent. You have questions about the reliability of the Bible, repent. 
you have questions about the countercultural things the Bible says about sexuality and other religions, repent. You have questions about whether God has accepted you, repent. But doubt is much more complicated than that. Sin is always part of it. Sin is always part of everything we do, right? But it's not the only part. This psalm devotes 28 verses to the question of whether the case for the existence of a faithful God crumbles when we realize that people who don't believe in him fare just as well or better than people who do. Why? Because that's a legitimate question. It's not sinful to ask it. In fact, it seems to me almost crazy not to ask it. How can we claim to be anything except extremely superficial believers if we're not troubled by that question? And Christianity is like that from A to Z. Christianity is full of difficult questions. Being a Christian is not living in some la-la land which never goes beyond Jesus loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. No, the gospel is wonderful, but it's also terrible. Christianity forces us to engage with all kinds of profoundly challenging truths, truths that we really rather would not hear. It forces us to accept the fact that we are not the masters of our own destiny. God has made us and he has the right to define who we are and what we're for. Christianity forces us to accept the idea that the human race is fallen, that we're lost and destined for eternal separation from God unless he intervenes to rescue us. Christianity forces us to accept the idea that God's rescue plan centers on Jesus Christ and that it's not okay just to be a sincere Hindu or a sincere Muslim or a sincere atheist, however much we might wish it was. So you see, Christianity forces us to face troubling, painful realities. And I question whether we can be Christians at all if they don't produce trouble and pain in us. Do we have to repent of that trouble and pain? Of course not. These realities produce trouble and pain in God himself. And doubts don't just come from the difficulty of the questions that the Bible raises. There are many other contributory factors. Temperament can play a big part in our struggles with faith. Are you the kind of person who uh, struggles to maintain that steady confidence in God and all that he's done for you? Well, I wonder, are you also the kind of person who uh, struggles to stay steady in other areas of life? Are you the kind of person who wonders frequently if uh, they're going to get fired by their boss or uh, ditched by their girlfriend or chucked out of their college program? Well, guess what? If that's you, your doubts about God don't say half so much about God as they do about you. You're vulnerable to doubt by temperament. Great thing to know. The norms of the society that we live in can also play a really big part in it. If you live as part of a tight-knit community of Christians or a tight-knit Christian family and you don't have that much contact with people who aren't Christians, it's no surprise that it's relatively easy just to run along without questioning the basics. But if you emerge from that tight-knit community or family and you find yourself suddenly surrounded by people who have very different beliefs to you and turn out not to have two heads and actually to be rational and quite reasonable and sensible, it's hard not to start asking difficult questions about your faith, isn't it? Does that mean that anything fundamental has changed about the gospel or whether Jesus really existed or whether he said all the things he was supposed to have said? Not a bit. 
but your change in social setting has made you vulnerable. Good thing to know. Changes in circumstances can also play a really big part. A person who's previously found it really quite easy to believe the Bible might suddenly find it really hard to believe the Bible if they suddenly lose their job or suddenly find themselves really wanting to do something that the Bible forbids. So all these factors play a part. And in most situations, they're mixed together. And sin is right in there as part of the mix, but it's not the entire explanation. And Asaph knows that. So in verse 3, you see him recognizing that his own struggles are not entirely attributable to the difficulty of the questions that he's facing, or to his temperament, or to his circumstances, or whatever else. There is a moral component to it. He's not just confused and distressed by the prosperity of the wicked. He actually envies it. He wants it for himself. But that's not the entire explanation. So it's all of this stuff together that brings us after this point of crisis, which he describes very graphically in verse 2. My feet had almost slipped, he says. I'd almost lost my foothold. That's the language of a climber carefully picking his way up a steep traverse when suddenly his feet start to go out from underneath him, isn't it? Can you feel that moment in your guts? Ooh, the frantic scrambling for grip. The fear, the panic that now completely consumes your mind. That's what it's like to hang all your hopes on the truth of the gospel and then suddenly start to wonder whether it's actually real. Have you been there? I know I have. So let's get into this now and look at Asaf's description of his experience. Because there's a lot here to teach us and encourage us when we face similar situations. In verses 4 to 12, Asaf describes his observation that began this whole train of thought in his mind. He starts in verse 4 by telling us that the wicked have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from human, common human burdens. And they're not plagued by human ills. And he ends verse 12 by repeating the same thing. They're free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Asaf looked around him and he saw people who had no interest in God whatsoever, who nonetheless seemed to live these remarkable, untroubled, seemingly invulnerable lives. And when he looked at the lives of ordinary people like himself, full of worry, insecurity, illness, money troubles, uh, and unexpected losses, he was staggered by the contrast. The wicked seemed almost like another race floating above it all like God's, apparently protected from all the trouble. And he was right, wasn't he? That is how it seems sometimes. Some people do just seem to ride above the chaos and the sucking destructiveness of life. And especially when we're experiencing the chaos and the suction ourselves, oh, how we want to be them, don't we? This brings us right into the heart of Asaf's problem. Because in his mind, this experience of security and freedom from pain uh, that he sees these people enjoying is the good that he thought God had promised to do to Israel back in verse 1. Do you remember that? Look back at that first verse. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is what Asaph thought that promise was all about. 
And so for him, everything's the wrong way around, isn't it? God promised to do good to his people, but the people who are actually receiving the good are God's enemies. But even here as he lays out the problem, we can see that there's something wrong with his logic, can't we? In verses 6 to 11, we get a glimpse of what this good that the wicked are receiving actually does to them. And it's not at all what you would think. Does their godlike invulnerability make them happy? Does it make them a blessing to their neighbors? Not at all. Asaf tells us that they put on pride as a necklace and clothe themselves in violence. That's exactly the same good old put on and put off metaphor that we had back in Ephesians a couple of weeks ago. But it's a hideously inverted version of it, isn't it? These people are becoming what they are. They're letting what's true of them on the inside become evident on the outside. But what the outside shows us is a picture of an inside that's horribly messed up. These people have calloused hearts. And that's a great image, isn't it? Uh, I know all about calluses because I play the guitar. When you first start playing the guitar, it just hurts your fingers like crazy because you spend hours and hours squeezing them down onto these sharp metal strings and you get blisters and you bleed. But after a while, your body starts to adapt to it and the skin on the tips of your fingers toughens up and it becomes all leathery so that you can't feel that pain anymore. I could probably put the tips of my fingers over a candle flame and not feel it. But did you know that the same thing can happen to your heart? Did you know that we can become so habituated to greed and unconcern that we no longer appreciate the evil of greed and unconcern or the pain that it causes? Godlike invulnerability to pain in our own lives makes us invulnerable to pain in other people's lives. And that's what happened to the people in Asaf's description. Next, he tells us when human beings float above the cares of the world like gods, we start to imagine that we are gods and our imaginations get filled with godlike schemes. We lay out plans for the next five or 10 or 20 years ahead of us, assuming that we have every variable uh, conveniently under our control. We plan to be noticed. We plan to make it big. We plan to be talked about. And we belittle the achievements and the expertise of others in order to make ourselves look greater by comparison. When human beings get even a whiff, it seems, of the kind of self-sufficiency that God himself enjoys, we use it to impose ourselves on other people, not to serve them. Our mouths lay claim to heaven and our tongues take possession of the earth. We reach out to do whatever we like with the resources we find in front of us. And we create a moral framework around us that uh, allows us to justify it. And just as immunity from human ills creates this twisted version of godlike behavior in the people who enjoy it, it also creates a twisted version of creaturely dependence in the people who don't. Verse 10 is such a heartbreaking statement, isn't it? Such a portrait of our own time and our own culture. Because we have gods like this too, floating up there above the troubles of the world. Role models and celebrities who are all so perfect and so invulnerable that they can buy their way out of any problem and get plastic surgery to conceal any deterioration. And what do we do? We worship them. We turn to them and drink up their waters in abundance. 
as Asaf puts it. We look up to the whole paper-thin sham of it and still convince ourselves that Michael Phelps and Jennifer Aniston know more about what makes life worth living than the God who made life. So when Asaf concludes this section in verses 13 and 14, there's a double edge to it already, isn't there? Yes, if freedom from struggles and human ills is the good that God promised to Israel, if control and security and a great pension and a great insurance policy and a bulletproof medical plan are the things that make life worth living, then I think Asaf has it right. God is definitely failing and all our efforts to serve him probably are in vain. But even if that is all there was, even if the logic behind that was flawless, I think we would still be forced to recognize the poverty of the place that it brings us to, wouldn't we? Asaf envied the wicked. He envied their immunity from pain and sorrow. But he didn't envy what it did to them. Even in his desire to have what the wicked had, Asaf was beginning to discover the bankruptcy of it, wasn't he? There's something profoundly off about this vision of the world and of what makes life worth living isn't in it. It feels all wrong. It elevates something that our hearts tell us is disgusting. And that's what wandering away from God is really like. That would be the end of the road uh, if our doubts really came to master us. This is what atheism actually looks like on the inside. Whatever satisfaction people hope to find from it intellectually, and I think that's very dependent on how carefully you're prepared to actually look at it. Atheism is profoundly dissatisfying morally because this is what it produces. Human beings take on the role of God, but our performance in that role is profoundly unconvincing. As we go on with this psalm, we find that Asaph has put a lot of thought into the structure of it. Did you notice in verse 1, he he begins with that word, surely. uh, And then he makes a statement about what he thinks is sure. And then in verses 2 and 3, he gives us a kind of personal reflection on that statement. So you see the pattern. We have surely and a statement and then a personal reflection. And Asaph's going to do that three times in this psalm. And it's significant for us to kind of follow those through. In verse 13, we get the second surely, and the statement goes with it that goes with it is devastating. In vain, I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. All day long, I've been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. That represents the guts of Asaph's doubt, doesn't it? If the good that God was supposed to be doing for his people was keeping them free from human ills, then he's letting the side down big time. Where is he? But just like the first surely in in verse 1, this second surely is also followed by a kind of personal reflection in verses 15 to 17. And this one is really interesting for us if we want to know how to deal with doubts in our own experience. First of all, Asaph says, if I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. Remember who Asaph is. He's the, uh, the worship pastor at First Bible Church in Jerusalem. And he's telling us here that that has implications for him in his experience of doubt. He realizes that it would not be okay for him to share the unresolved train of thought that we've just read in public. 
He tells us that if he had stood up in front of the congregation at the tabernacle one Saturday morning and said, hey, you know what, folks, I'm afraid I don't think I can really lead worship today because I've realized that uh, all our efforts to follow God are in vain. He doesn't keep his promises. If he had stood up and said that, that would not have been a cool contemporary worship move. It would have betrayed God's children. And that's really important These days we rightly place a high value on authenticity. Long may that last. But it's all going a bit too far when we start splurging unresolved questions all over Facebook and embracing the reality of doubt to the point where we almost celebrate it. Doubt is a reality in the Christian life, but it's not a desirable end point. The Bible always encourages us to work our way through it towards greater trust and dependence. And we have to be considerate of our brothers and sisters and where they are in their walk as we do that. If we stand up and share a whole host of questions that we've been wrestling with in public, we have no way of knowing how our words are going to affect the other people who hear us. Something that may seem innocuous to us may deeply unsettle someone who is newer to Christianity or at a more vulnerable spot in their walk than we are. Bearing our souls about our doubts is not a good topic for an open mic event in church. No, we need smaller scale community for this kind of thing. We need people in our lives who really get us and with whom we have some shared accountability. We need people around us who are mature in their faith and who've been around the block a few times, who've uh, known doubts and have walked with God through them. I wonder, do we have people in our lives like that? might just be worth when you get home just thinking okay who plays that role for me and who do I play that role for this is what our house churches are all about the goal is to try to create safe places where we can really get to know and support other people and where we can really be known and supported where the difficult stuff can be shared in confidence but more important than all of that the thing that Asaf did is he took his doubts to God Did you see that in verses 16 and 17? He said, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. Now that might sound just a bit mental to us. I'm struggling to be sure that God exists, so I'm going to pray to God about it. But isn't that exactly what we said about faith at the start? Faith and doubt are not incompatible. Remember, faith is acting on the basis that what God has said is true, whether it feels true or not. If I talk to God about my doubts, I am acting on the basis that what God has said is true, aren't I? I'm acting on the basis that he's real and that he's open for business. But if I don't talk to him about it, well, that's another matter. Now I'm no longer acting on the basis that what he said is true, am I? Now I'm acting on the basis that he isn't real and that he isn't open for business. And that's not just doubt anymore. That's unbelief. We have to bring our questions to him. And when we do, if we pour out all the pain and the confusion of it, if we cry out to him, asking him to hear us and help us, that is faith. That's pure, raw real faith. It's the essence of faith. It's the really good stuff. 
That's Job-like faith. That's even though he slays me, yet I will trust him kind of faith. And here in the psalm, we find that it's rewarded. Asaf doesn't tell us how long this went on. He doesn't tell us how long he had to wait. I remember when this was me, it was a long wait. I went through all of my university years wrestling with questions like this, feeling that constant sense that something was amiss, that knot in my stomach, that uh, feeling that my feet were going out from underneath me. And it was only really in my mid-twenties when God started just to turn the corner with me uh, when I got sick. And I look back now and I'm grateful for it. I couldn't preach this sermon without that experience. I wouldn't have the sense of sympathy that God's given me for any of you guys who struggle. Uh, I wouldn't have learned half of what I know about who God is and why it's reasonable to believe in him if he hadn't allowed that experience to last as long as it did and to be as hard as it was. But in the end, this is the place where it ended for me too. Coming into the presence of God. Coming to the place that God has assigned for us to meet him. For Asaph, it was the tabernacle. For us, it's Jesus Christ. So just kind of uh, as we come towards the end of the message here, I actually want to just take a break here and pray. And let's do that. Because this isn't a game. There may be people here in this room right now who are in exactly this spot. And I want to pray for you. And there may be people next to you who are in this spot. And I want you to pray for them. And guess what? This may be you one day. And I want you to pray for you. Let's ask, let's come before Jesus and ask him to work in us that we might grow in our confidence and be effective and useful for him. So just join with me as I pray. God in heaven, I just pray your mercy and your blessing over any of us here who are struggling with our faith. God, whether it just all seems like it's slipping out from underneath us or whether we're not sure that we're included and we have people sitting around us who are raising their hands and praising their hearts out and we just think, oh, that's not me. God, have mercy. Lord, would you just lift these brothers and sisters up from where they are? Lord, I pray that you would fight off those doubts and struggles and God, achieve all that you would through it. Would you strengthen their faith? Would you equip them to be useful in your service? And God, I pray that the experience that Asaph had might be theirs that you would open their eyes. So we come to you, Jesus, knowing that you are the place where our questions are answered. We're exercising faith in you despite our feelings, praying, God, that you would work in us for your great name's sake. Amen. So now we hit the home stretch here in this psalm, and we reach the third of Asaph's three surely statements in verse 18. Remember in verse 1, he said, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who appear in heart. And that became uh, the statement of his problem, didn't it? Uh, when he looked at the world and he saw God apparently doing much more good to his enemies than he did to his friends. Then in verse 13, uh, that problem came to its natural conclusion. If God did good to his enemies, then either God didn't care about his promises, or he wasn't able to keep them however much he wanted to, or he wasn't there at all. And so Asaph concluded, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. But now in verse 18, having brought all of this before God in the tabernacle, Asaph emerges with a new perspective. Surely you place them on slippery ground, he says. You cast them down to ruin. The contrast of verse 2 is really striking here, don't you think? 
all through the psalm up till this point, Asaph has been troubled by the security of the wicked. They float above the cares of the world, untouched by all the troubles that affect ordinary human beings. But when he start, and when he started thinking about that, Asaph's feet almost slipped, didn't they? His situation seemed really insecure. It looked like he was about to lose his faith. But now look at the way the tables are turned. Asaph's situation looked insecure, but now we find it wasn't. God had him in his hands all along, but not so the wicked. Asaph almost slipped, but when these guys slip, there will be no almost about it. Although they seem to be invulnerable from our perspective, from God's perspective, they're walking on a high wire with no safety net. The defenses that they've built to protect them from the ups and downs of life, the savings, the insurance policies, the network, the achievements, offer them no protection from the reality of death. Asaph likens their lives to a dream. And I think we can all relate to that, can't we? In a dream, all sorts of things can seem natural and obvious and endless to us. But when the dream ends, they evaporate. None of the rules that made them natural or obvious or endless apply anymore. No matter how hard we might try to go back to sleep and to return to that world, we can't. And that's how the godlike invulnerability of, the self, of self-sufficient human beings seems to God. That's a terrifying thought. If we get used to self-dependence, we lose all awareness of how dependent on good God we truly are. At the end of our lives, Asaf says it will be as if God is waking from a dream. And all our invulnerability, which seems so natural and obvious and endless to us, will simply evaporate. It will be absolutely meaningless, absurd. And we'll have no case to make with God. Our protest that we were something in this world, that we were the big shots, that we must be listened to, that we deserve special attention, will count for absolutely zero. When a dream is over, there's no returning to it. Is that you today? Are you one of the self-sufficient people that Asaph is writing to here? Verse 20 should scare you out of your mind. You do not want to be part of the dream that God wakes from. But all this provides the answer to the question that Asaph has been asking all along. Is floating above the evil and the suffering of this world the good that God promised to his people? No. Floating above the evil and the suffering of this world is the most toxic thing that can ever happen to a human being. Floating above the evil and the suffering of the world is a death sentence. It's true. God did make us originally for this, for security, for rest, for freedom from trouble and chaos. But now, after the fall, now that each one of us has the propensity to believe that we are God, that kind of life experience is a curse and not a blessing. God sent us out of the garden because he loves us, because he knew what staying there would do to us. And if we set our hearts on turning our present lives back into the garden, it will destroy us. 
So do you see what a devastating critique that is of our society? What is modern Western culture all about? What's the American dream all about if it isn't about achieving what Asaf saw in his world? It's about reaching the top, achieving security, managing risk, getting to a position in life where even if I lose my job or get sick, I'll have enough money in the bank to fix it and bob right back to the top. It's all about being and staying healthy, wealthy, pretty, and popular. But every single piece of that will make us more and more into a living corpse, a parody of God, attracting a parody of worship from people not so fortunate as ourselves, until one day we will die and the whole thing will dissipate and fragment like a dream. And it will make as much sense as a dream does, and it will have as much ongoing relevance as a dream does. It's good for us to be insecure in this fallen world. God allows us to experience the many little deaths of life and death at the end of life to draw us to himself. And that's where Asaf comes out. His journey through doubt has moved him forward, hasn't it? He doesn't believe in the God he thought existed back in verse 1 anymore. He doesn't believe in a God who is all about making people secure in this life. He doesn't envy the people that have that security anymore. Asaph has a new perspective on the good that God promised to his people. And here's what it looks like. He says, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Verse 23 there, where Asaph says, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. Just creates such a clear picture in my mind. Maybe it's because I have little children of my own now. But that's a description of a father with a child, isn't it? Who else can say, I am always with you, except the little child. Ruth's and my children have never spent a single night under a different roof from us. And that's what we do. We hold them by their right hands. We guide them with our counsel. And that's the alternative to godlike independence that Asaf, uh, that the godlike independence that Asaf began the chapter envying. Because a child doesn't need to engineer their own security, do they? A child doesn't have to ask the question, do I have everything that I need to survive and to be independent and to manage every risk that I might meet? Of course not. Those aren't questions a child should have to ask. And what a sick childhood it would be if they did. A child finds their security in their mum and dad. And that's our situation as children of God. We don't have to be the parent. We can't be. And our attempt to force ourselves into that role is as sick as sick could be. When we try to reach upwards to be God, we just find ourselves sliding downwards. We're dehumanized, we're desensitized, we're reduced to animal-like acquisitiveness. But to be God's children is to be with God and to have him working in our lives to craft that spirit of dependence on him for which we were originally made. He guides us. It might not always feel like it. We may not always know where we're going or why we're going there. But hey, that's what being a child is like, isn't it? 
And faith never was about feelings so much as it was about following anyway. God is more interested in keeping our hands in his, allowing him to create a life around us that breaks us of our belief in our self-sufficiency and teaches us to depend on him. And after that, heaven awaits. The end of our lives won't be like God waking from a dream if we know him. Asaf simply tells us it will be glory. He doesn't provide any more details because we don't need them. This life is teaching us to depend. And if we learn that lesson well, we'll be able to trust him when our time comes. We'll close our eyes with our hands in his. And when we open them again, our hands will still be in his. This world is constantly scrambling for control, for health, for leverage. But to be a Christian is to be able to leave all of that stuff behind. Even if my heart and my flesh should fail, Asaf says at the end, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now he can say, I don't need to be what the world is telling me to be. I don't need to aim for what the world is telling me to aim for. I don't even want to. And that's what it really means when God says he is good to Israel, back in verse 1. That's what brings Asaph finally to the point of resolution. And to the point where he has something he can share with everybody. As for me, it's good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. And I will tell of all your deeds. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this psalm. For the way that it teaches us. Just to value walking through life the way that you have planned for us to walk. Not to be scrambling for something other than where we are. Not to be doubting you because we uh, can't see uh, the, uh, the security and the success and the prosperity that we might hope for. But Lord, to put our hands in yours. To say we are children. You know what you're doing, Daddy. You know where you're going. We trust you. God, I pray that you would please help us then to see that it is good. It is the supreme good. Nothing in this world compares to being near God. And we thank you so much that you did the most incredible thing to make that possible, that you became a man to be near us. And we reach out our hand trusting that Jesus shows us everything we need to know about the Father. And he is just inches away if we'll just reach out and hold on to him. So Jesus, would you lead us? You be the parent, and we'll be the children.